Sorry, that was a longer walk than I thought. <laughs> Good morning. Hope you're all feeling joyful this morning, because we'll be looking at joy this morning. Um, my kids were asking me what I was preaching on, and they, I told them Philippians. Well, well, the first thing they asked me was what I was preaching on, and then they said, don't tell me it's Philippians. But there's a lot to preach about in Philippians, okay? Uh, Anyway, so yes, we're in Philippians. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Philippians, um, chapter 2. <clears throat> and uh, this morning I said this sermon is sort of like the intermission between two acts of a play. Brandon's been doing the Zacharias song series, and, and we're looking forward to the Ruth series, but and we have the little intermission here, uh, so we'll go to the book of Acts. Or if you prefer to consider it the elevator music that you have to listen to when you go from one floor to another. Uh, either way, um, I pray that God will use the hearing of his word uh, this morning uh, to bring joy to your life as well. So today, yes, we'll be in chapter two of the book of Philippians. It's almost like a part two of the last sermon that I preached because um, I kind of stopped mid-sentence, though it was a different verse. Uh, so Today we'll have a, a bit of a rehash of some of the things that I preached on last time, just to draw it all together. Um, the focus verses, uh, when we get to the end, will be verses 16 through 18, but really to bring it together, we'll have to go back and um, look at 12 through 18, just for some context. Um, so we have to do that in order to have um, context and to see... Uh, we want to know what Paul says. Um, since we want to know why Paul says what he says, we must know what he said before he says what he said. That's what I wrote. That was a confusing thing for me to write, so I shouldn't have written it. So confusing. <laughs> hey, hey, I'm glad it made sense to you. That's good. I wanted it to. <laughs> So, he, Paul is uh, uh, really, throughout this book, dealing with uh, the topic of joy a lot, and so we'll see that a little bit today as well. But let's read first chapter 2, verses 12 through 18 in the book of Philippians. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray this morning. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we are so glad to be here today. We come together as your children, to gather around your word and to learn, to be taught, to be encouraged, to be corrected, 
Uh, Father, I pray that you would do so this morning. I pray that we would set aside all of the distractions, the thoughts of what's for lunch or what's on our phone or the things that tend to take away our attention from what you would have to say to us, Lord, in your word. I pray that we'll be able to focus in. We thank you, Lord, that your word is like a hammer that crushes stones. It's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We thank you, Father, that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that's what we ask this morning, Lord, that we would pause to think about our life, think about what you have done for us, and what our response needs to be. Help us to have right thinking. We give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. So, My kids really thought it was weird when I told them that I started preaching this Philippians series two years ago, and I'm only in chapter two. (laughs) But, you know, when you only preach every once in a while, it just takes a while. So, anyway, I thought I would give a little background again, because it was two years ago when I gave this background in regards to the city of Philippi. Uh, So, um, just by way of reminder... uh, The city of Philippi is the first place in the region of Macedonia that Paul preached the gospel. The church began there through the conversions of a woman named Lydia and to the uh, the conversion of the Philippian jailer who guarded Paul after he and his companions were beaten and thrown in jail there uh, for casting out that demon from the slave girl. Uh, And so this is, Philippi is no easy place to be a Christian. Um, The church there did not start off in good terms with many of the people in the city. And the city was full of idolatry and greed and um, a lot of hardened, battle-hardened Roman soldiers as well. Philippi is in the northeastern part of Greece and was named for Philip II of Macedon, who was the father of, somebody knows, right? Alexander the Great, right. Uh, Philippi was not really put on the map, so to speak, Uh, until the Battle of Philippi, where Mark Antony and Octavian defeated Brutus and Cassius, uh, which later resulted in the end of the Roman Republic and the beginning of the Roman Empire. It was about 13 years after that battle that, uh, in about 29 BC, that Octavian was named Emperor of Rome and took the name Caesar Augustus. And that should sound familiar to you because he is the Caesar Augustus mentioned in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, Uh, verse 1, that sends out a decree that the whole world should be registered. A decree that will force Joseph and Mary to travel to Bethlehem to register, and a journey which will bring about the fulfillment of prophecy that uh, Christ would be born in Bethlehem. So now, being on the map and under the control of the Roman Empire, Philippi will become a Roman colony where many Roman soldiers would settle, mixing in with the Greeks and anyone else already living there. Philippi became a major pathway for travel and trade, but not for the gospel until about 50 AD when Paul responded to what we know as the the Macedonian call, um, found in Acts chapter 16, where the Holy Spirit gives Paul a vision of a Macedonian man um, um, calling him to come and help them, which he did and which led to the conversions of Lydia and the jailer that I mentioned earlier. And Paul's life is 
marked by suffering and persecution because of his gospel work. In fact, at the writing of this letter, he's in prison in about 61 AD, and not for theft or violence, uh, but because of his gospel work, and, and everyone knows it. He said in chapter 1, verse 13, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And however difficult Paul's life is, he himself has a joyful disposition and calls for the Philippians to have that same disposition. And that's the title of the sermon today, A Joyful Disposition. Um, And even though the Philippian believers also face persecution and suffering for their faith in Christ, Paul continues to exhort them toward Christian joy. He doesn't give them a pass because uh, Christianity is, is hard. Joy is an ongoing theme in this letter to the Philippians, and it's the subject mentioned in all four chapters. And this is no small matter, and Paul makes it clear that the life of Christians should be marked by a joyful disposition. He even goes so far as to say his death for the faith of the Philippians would be something to rejoice in. There seems to be no circumstantial limits to Paul's joy. And he calls the Philippians to the same, and by extension, us as well. So I want to look at the fact that God knows what he's doing in the lives of believers. After reminding them in verses 12 and 13 that they are to continue to obey the word of God in his absence just as they did when he was with them, Paul adds that the working out of their salvation is sometimes a fearful thing, but that in reality it is God working in them to will and to work for his good pleasure. He goes on in verse 14 to say, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And the point here is that since God is at work in the lives and circumstances of every believer, for his own good pleasure, do not spend your time grumbling about it. If God allows a believer to experience suffering, it is necessary. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake what Paul said in chapter 1, verse 29. That's a hard pill to swallow because we tend to measure life by how good things are going. Paul could have had the perspective that because he was in prison, things were going badly. Instead, his perspective was to look through his circumstances at what God was doing because of his circumstances. His was a joyful disposition that communicated a message of, look how many people I get to preach to because I'm in prison. The problem the Philippians were having is the same problem we have. They took their eyes off of Christ. Instead of looking through their circumstances and focusing on the joy of their salvation in Christ, they were troubled by life's hardships, forgetting that God uses such things to strengthen the believer and to call the lost to himself. They had also apparently forgotten Paul's suffering for them. As I was preparing the sermon, I was thinking about our dog, 
<clears throat> well, yeah, I won't tell you the one bad thing I'm thinking about him, but anyway, <laughs> I was thinking about the fact that he has this specific toy that he likes to play with, and the girls throw it, and he loves to run around and get it, but if you grab that toy and and hold it out, he stares at it. And if you move your hand over here, he, his head does not go anywhere except following that toy wherever you put it. You can knock him over, you can shove him out of the way, whatever. He does not take his eyes off of that. If you pretend you're going to throw it, his body goes like he's going to go get it, but he doesn't go because he's got his eyes on it. He knows you did not throw that. It is, it is everything his focus is so intense on that toy that nothing else matters. He sees through everything else and is focused completely on that toy. His eyes do not leave it. And I think that is how our life needs to be in Christ, that we need to keep our eyes on Christ, our focus on Christ. Um, when hardships come and struggles come, those things uh, that can uh, tend to knock us down we keep our eyes on Christ, we will have uh, a more likely, it will be more likely that we'll, our joy will be able to remain. It doesn't mean we're happy about every little thing that happens, but we can have joy in Christ because of our salvation in Him. And God is never wrong, and your circumstances never take Him by surprise. He's never left saying, huh, I, I didn't see that one coming. He always has a purpose in what he allows a believer to experience. And when we grumble and dispute in our circumstances, we're directing it straight at God. Basically, we're saying, I don't believe you got this right, God. I disagree with your plans. I disagree with your methods. Furthermore, what you're allowing in my life is not fair. I know you saved me from eternal hell and all, but I should not have to suffer anything in my life. And that kind of unbelief cost a certain group of people 40 years of wandering in the desert. He saved them out of bondage in Egypt, and they grumbled at the way he was guiding them to the promised land. In light of the cross of Christ and salvation from the bondage of sin and death, may I suggest that we not grumble about how God gets us through this life to our promised eternal life. So how do we get a right perspective? How do we have right thinking about God's involvement in our lives and what we can expect as Christians? Well, we must read about who God is and what he's done for us in the scripture. We must get our information from the Bible, not from YouTube. What is God's involvement in our lives? Well, First of all, we're not little wind-up toys that God has twisted up and set loose so he can watch us waddle around bumping into everything and then fall over. He's not up there watching and hoping that someday we will end up finding him. If that is how God did things, not only would we never find him, we wouldn't even look. Romans 3, 10 through 12 if you want to turn there, you can. This is a harsh verse, a couple verses here. doesn't make you feel good. Romans 3, verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, 
no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That includes you and me. People sometimes say of themselves, I used to be this way or that way, but then I found God. And that's not true, because dead men can't find anything. And without Christ, you're spiritually dead. The scripture is clear that no one seeks for God. The truth is, if you are in Christ, you did not find him. He found you. Jesus said, he has come to seek and to save the lost. He found you. That is his involvement in your life. He came for you. He bought you with his own blood and suffering on the cross. And he called you out of darkness. According to his great mercy, he has caused you to be born again. So we can have joy in any circumstance as we look forward to everlasting life with him. As we bring glory to his name, as he guides us through all the circumstances he allows in our life. After giving you everlasting life at such a high price, can he not do with you what he sees fit? God is allowing us to experience exactly what we need to experience in order to accomplish his will and good pleasure and to make us complete. Turn to James chapter 1, if you would. a familiar passage when dealing with trials, but just because it's familiar doesn't mean it's not important. James chapter 1, starting at verse 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If God wanted to protect you from something, he would. In reality, we have no idea of all the suffering, hardship, and loss, and pain that he has protected us from. We only know what he has allowed because we've lived it. So that tends to be our focus. Instead of asking God, asking how God might glorify himself through our suffering, we tend to grumble. So we need this right thinking because this will help us with the goal of verse 15, back in our Philippians passage. In verse 15, says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The negative in verse 14 will keep us from being the positive in verse 15. 
The reason we need to be striving to be joyful in our circumstances is because it will cause us to be blameless and innocent in the eyes of men, proving we are children of God without blemish while everything around us in this world is crooked and twisted. Not that we would be perfect or that we could see ourselves as having arrived at sinlessness here on earth, but that we would continue to strive for godly living and to not be open to being accused, to not bring accusation against ourselves or the church of Christ. Really, we must stick out like a sore thumb, so to speak. As unbelievers go about their day, the believers they encounter should cause them to take a second look, to ask themselves, why does that believer remain joyful even though I know they have all kinds of suffering in their life. That points to Christ. Sin is the problem. Sin is what put Christ on the cross to die. He paid for your sin, and as a believer, it would really help if we hated sin as much as God hates sin. And not to try to drag it along with us, as Pastor Brandon talked about last week. But make no mistake, if you are born again in Christ, your sins are forgiven. They are paid for. You need not fret about how to atone for your sin because Jesus already did it once for all when he offered himself on the cross. The last part of verse 15 says that it is among this crooked and twisted generation that we Christians shine as lights. It is a statement of fact that Paul is making. The two cannot be separated. Christians shine as lights in the world because Christians have the only source of light there is. Look over in Matthew 5.16. In this section, talking about how Christians are salt and light, in verse 16, it says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our good deeds are living godly lives according to his word. And that points people to God and brings him praise. This is not about good deeds that point people to us to say how good we are. We can't even do any good deeds without Christ. So everything that we do in obedience to God and his word points to him. We don't always shine as brightly as we should, but because we do still struggle with our old sin nature. However, we don't like sin. Christians don't want the sin in their lives, and they ask God to help with getting rid of it. The world loves its sin and does not want to get rid of it. It will try to convince the church that sin is okay. That something that used to be sin isn't sin anymore. But that's not true. God doesn't change. What he says is sin is sin. And we cannot let the thinking of the world creep into the church and cause us to say that any sin is okay. 
We like to say that Jesus loves us just the way we are, but that's a dangerous statement. If by that statement a person means Jesus loves me just the way that I am, so I will stay the way that I am, they're wrong. Jesus died because of your sin. Everything has changed when you're in Christ. You're born again. You are taken from darkness to light. You are a new creation. You have been brought from death to life. God has taken your sin away as far as the east is from the west. Does that sound like something that we should cling to? That sin is gone. We cannot bring it in. Christians agree with God about what sin is and that it is a horrible offense against him. So we try to hold the standard of God's word for guidance in Christian living. And we try to hold each other to that standard. And we do it through prayer and through the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And let's look over at Titus, if you would, chapter 2. It's a really hard book to find because it's really small. And I knew ahead of time, so I put a bookmark in it so I could get there faster than you. Titus chapter 2, right after 2 Timothy. And we'll be looking at verses 11 through 15. Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. We are to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while we wait for Jesus to come back. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness or sin and to purify us, to purify the church for himself. We are to be about the business of shining by our words and our actions. Does anyone know you're a Christian? Do you ever talk about your salvation in Christ? Do you look like and talk like the world and then come to church on Sunday thinking you're keeping yourself right with God? We are all witnessing to people every day, either by word or deed. The question is, what is your witness? Is it that Jesus is the focus of your life and everything else is secondary? Like the example we have from Paul? Or is it that your life is the focus of your life and Jesus is secondary. Do you know more and more each day about Instagram, Facebook, movie stars, sports statistics, and fashion? Or do you know more each day about Jesus by spending time reading what he has said about himself? 
What is your focus in life? I submit to you that joy will come from the latter and anxiety will come from the former. So when Christians agree with the world that darkness is not darkness and sin is not sin, we are not shining. We need to constantly be checking what the Bible says against what we're believing in the world. Sin can very subtly begin to creep in if we don't know how to recognize it. And we continue back in our Philippians passage into verse 16. It says, Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Some translations say, holding fast to the word of life, and some say, holding forth the word of life. There are small variations on both of those, but uh, they are the two main ways that the Greek word Paul uses here is translated. First of all, I believe in regard to the word of life Paul is talking about here, that he's talking about the gospel. The thing Christians are to hold on to is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That said, is the gospel to be held fast to, or is the gospel to be held forth? That is the question that comes up when we see the different renderings of the Greek word. But in Scripture, it's clear that it's both. That Christians are to hold fast to the word of life, to the gospel. And Christians are to hold forth the word of life, or the gospel, offering it to others. Though verse 16 is a, is a new verse here, it's still part of the context in verse 15, talking about shining as lights in the world. And it seems to be more fitting in the context of the whole passage that we would be told that the way we shine in the world is to hold forth the word of life, to hold forth the gospel, uh, or hold it out to others. But that in no way minimizes the need for believers to hold fast to the word of life. That is why I think both ways of translating this make sense. A Christian cannot hold forth the word of life unless he himself is holding fast to it. Also, unless a Christian is holding fast to the word of life, he will try and hold something else out to the world. Imagine pitch blackness, and you're the only one in, it with, in there with a candle for direction. And it's lit. It is a light that will never go out and is the only light that leads to salvation. You hold it forth to light your own way and others, seeing it and hating the darkness, will follow. It is light for you and light for others who would come out of the darkness. But if you do not hold fast to that light and instead set it aside, you will remain in darkness because there is no other source of light. We are told that we shine as lights, and we cannot do so if we hide the only source of light there is. We have nothing to hold forth if we have never grasped and held fast to the source ourselves. So I do believe the intent here is that the gospel would be held out in order to shine, but we must first hold fast to the truth ourselves. We hold the gospel fast and forth because we're not ashamed of it 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So we hold it out to a crooked and twisted generation as the only means of being straightened. There is no other way. There is only one light that can expose the darkness of sin in this world, and it is the light of truth. The light of the gospel which says we are all sinners in need of salvation and that it is only found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here in Philippians, Paul is also thinking ahead to the day of Christ. He wants the Philippians to know that it is the gospel that has been his life's work. He equates his gospel work as a race that is run and as labor. And Paul uses this kind of comparison in other places as well. In 1 Corinthians 9.24, Paul says, do, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Runners do not run a race for nothing. There's a prize at the end. And Paul wants to know that he did not run his race in vain. And what he means there is that he wants to know that the gospel that he has been proclaiming has not fallen on deaf ears or hard hearts among the Philippians. He wants to know that his labor has produced a harvest. He references the day of Christ as the day he will find out. When Christ returns to gather his people to himself, the sight of others there with him that he labored in the gospel for will be something to be proud of. This is not a sinful kind of pride, a bragging, boasting kind of pride in himself but a joyful celebration of the saving power of the gospel of Christ and finally having re realized it. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 2. And as we get near the end here, I'll, we'll have a few more to flip to, so get your fingers thought out. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verses 19 and 20. He says here, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. That's what he's saying about the Philippians, too. So as we Christians wait for the day of Christ's return, what are we doing? Are we running the race? Are we fighting the good fight? Are we laboring in the gospel of Christ? That means knowing Christ and living for him must be a priority. It must come first and hold no other place in our lives. Living a life for Christ in response to the gospel is not just for pastors and missionaries, but for every Christian. Pastors and missionaries have been saved from the same lost sinfulness as you have. Since we know our salvation is secure in Christ, we are free to live joyfully for Him. 
Are you doing that? Are you living joyfully for Christ? Secure in your salvation. Let's t- turn to First Peter. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. And let's listen to what he says about our salvation. What it is, what it does, what it holds for us, and how we should look at it. Verse 3 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though... Now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's our view of our salvation. I don't have to hold on to it. It's being kept for me in Christ. It's secure. I take joy in that. But I see that trials, hardships may be necessary in my life to test my faith, to strengthen me, to bring knowledge of God to the lost. Whatever God sees fit in my life pales in comparison to what Christ paid for my sin. Finally, Paul tells them that not even being killed for his gospel work would be cause to cast his joy aside. Verse 17 of Philippians 2. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. This verse is a reference to the instructions that God gave to Moses for the sacrifices the people would offer when they entered the promised land. And this can be found in the book of Numbers, if you want to turn there, Numbers chapter 15. Looking at verses 4 and 5, as God gives these instructions to Moses, we learn about a drink offering. It says, Then he who brings his offering shall offer to the Lord a grain offering of a tenth of an ephah of flour, fine flour, mixed with a quarter of a hen of oil. And you shall offer with the burnt offering or for the sacrifice a quarter of a hen of wine for the drink offering. For each lamb. Okay, so Paul is mentioning this to bring some imagery into what he's saying. Moses was given specific 
measurements of wine that should be offered as a drink offering. And it's to be poured out to accompany the sacrifice offered by the priest. Paul's giving them this imagery because he knows his life is in danger and he may be martyred. So with his words in verse 17, we should have a picture in our mind. The Philippians should have a picture in their mind. The picture is that the Philippian believers would be in the place of the old covenant priests and the sacrifice being made is their faith. And that would make Paul's martyrdom, that is his blood, to be offered as if it were the wine in the drink offering. Even having to shed his own blood in death because of his work in leading people to faith in Christ will be counted by Paul as something to be rejoiced in. And we see that when writing to Timothy, he uses the drink offering reference again in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Except this time, it's different. This time, he's sure of it, that he is being poured out. 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. He says to Timothy, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is cause for great joy. He does not have a defeatist attitude here. He's joyful. This is not an arrogant man talking about what God owes him. This is a humble servant of Christ, joyfully proclaiming he is about to receive what he's been preaching about. There is no doubt in his words, no wavering, only a holding fast to the gospel of Christ to the very end and encouraging others in the same way. And that's how we should be taking this. This should be encouraging to us as believers to remain joyful, looking forward to our hope that we have in Christ. And so in verse 18, he says, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul tells, he doesn't leave it just as something that he rejoices in, but he tells the Philippians how they should feel about it, how they should feel about his death if it happens. You should also be glad and rejoice with me. How is Paul able to think this way? How is he able to tell them to think this way? Because Christ is everything. He said before, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It is a win-win. That's how Paul looked at his life in Christ. He placed Christ first. He kept his gaze on Christ. He grasped the level of mercy and grace he had been given in Christ. And he counted everything else as loss. Holding fast to the word of life 
sustains us. It empowers us. It enables us to shine as we also hold forth the word of life to a lost and condemned world. The word of life. The gospel is the words of life. Jesus is the word of life. Eternal life is everything that brings a truly joyful disposition to his people. Do you have it? Or do you have other priorities? Are you caught up in the struggles and circumstances of life, forgetting that God knows everything you are experiencing? He's not missing an action in your pain, in your loss, in your disease, in your anxiety, in your sickness, in your suffering, or in your fear. Fix your eyes back on Christ. Look forward with joy at the salvation kept for you and to be revealed on the day of Christ. You, Christian, have the only thing to be truly joyful about. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you again for this day. Father, as we've heard your words this morning, I pray that that's what will ring in our, in our minds, Lord. Whatever insufficiencies there are in my communication, Father, that it is your word and your word alone that would roll around in our heads, that would cause us to ponder our lives to examine how we're living. Lord, convict us, each person here, of the areas in our lives where we are not making you our priority. Help us, Lord, to cast aside the temporary, fleeting things of this world and cling to you. When hardship comes and struggle comes, which it does, whether it is hardship we are facing or hardship we are helping others to face. I pray that the words we would give that would bring comfort would be your words. That we would point others to Christ. Help us to shine, Lord, in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation. Protect us, Lord, from the lies that would tell us that sin is okay. Help us to examine ourselves in areas where we may be saying what you say is sin is okay. And help us to immediately get rid of that because you are truth and your word is truth. We thank you that you sanctify us. You are with us. Your spirit indwells us. You have given everything we need for life and godliness. May we trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We'll sing a final song.